I was back there talking, then realized I'm almost on. I need just a little sugar. So I got it now. Well, good evening. Come on now. Give me a little feedback. Good evening. Nice to see you. Good evening. Um, hope you had a great day. It warmed up this afternoon. So so cold last night, but it ended up being a beautiful afternoon. When that sun comes out, warms it up. Uh, yeah, it's nice. And um, look for, looking forward, been looking forward to coming back here. And um, boy, I, I, you know, just thinking about all the changes you all have gone through over all the years I've been coming. Uh, now, Keith was the pastor when I first started coming. You all remember Keith? How many of you were here when Keith was here? Yeah. And, um, and then I don't remember how long your interim was in between Keith and then, was it Kelly? So Kelly followed Keith. So I came probably four or five years at least when Keith was here, maybe more. How many years was Kelly your pastor? Well, I think it was, yeah, it was probably five or six. Um, and then I've been, uh, I've been maybe two or three times when you, you were in the interim periods. So that'd be about right, probably five or six with Keith, five or six with Kelly, and then two or three uh, in interim. That about, would about fill it out. Uh, say it again. Did I miss the year because of weather? Oh, I do remember that some big winter blast was coming. I missed, I think, Ponca City that year also, uh, I think. But, yeah, something like, something, that, that kind of fills in all of the years I've been coming. But I always look forward to it, and, and you're not the only church. Um, I do this regular cycle of churches. First Baptist Altus is always the first week. Now, I've been going there. Uh, longer than I've been coming here, and they've had the same pastor the whole time. He's been there that whole time. Uh, I think he's probably, you know, beginning to think about when he might retire. But uh, Quail Springs is always the second uh, place um, that I go in January. I was there last week, and uh, they, uh, I've been going there since before Hans was the pastor, and then he was the pastor, and now they've got Stephen Rummage. So I've been there through, I think, three or four pastors there with several interim periods. Three pastors and, and two interim periods. Um, Ponca City, yeah, so, so it just happens. Churches go through changes with pastors and other staff positions, and it's uncomfortable. And you, you hate the uncertainty of those periods, um, but every church goes through it. And um, I know you all are now starting, has it been about a year um, so you're, you're still in the process, uh, but I can tell you, and I don't know who's on the committee, so I'm sure don't want to make anybody mad, <laughs> uh, but I'd just say it's better to take longer and find, um, the, the right person that God's calling here than to sort of get a little panicky, decide, well, we just need to get somebody, and then when you get somebody here and they're not a good fit, there's not a lot you can do. And um, you can't just say, well, we really don't think you're working out, you know, five months, six months in. It, you just can't do that. So I would just say pray for the committee and tell them to just keep doing what they're doing and 
And they didn't pay me to say that either. But I know from experience, it's better if it takes longer. I was interim at First Baptist Shawnee for two years and about five months. Um, and the, the person they called only stayed like two years. So I was interim longer than the pastor they called. Um, and I think they sort of got to the end because I was telling them, you know, I can't do this much longer. And I think they just felt like, oh boy, we really need to find somebody. And, and, and they found somebody who wasn't a good fit for them. And, um, and then, the, then there was a shorter interim after that. And then the guy that they got had been a former student of mine who stayed uh, for a number of years and was a good fit. And now they've got another person. He, that, that person left. But um, it's not, uh, there's no guarantee that a, a committee finds a pastor in one year. Uh, and I, I'm certainly not predicting two, but if it does, it happens. So I don't remember how long the search was for Kelly, um, but I don't know how long you've traditionally taken in interim periods. But it can, it can take a while, but it's better to do that. Well, I'm not here. You didn't ask me here to talk about searches. So uh, we're going to talk about the Psalms tonight, and it's really an introduction to them. And uh, the, the reason why I wanted to do a whole session on introduction, because I find the Psalms just so interesting. And I think there are things about the Psalms that people don't recognize just in the way the, the collection's put together and the elevated style, how carefully constructed individual Psalms are. And uh, I think it's... It, it makes. I think you'll appreciate them if you if you've not been exposed to what I'm going to do tonight. I think you'll you'll appreciate them even more than you you might uh, at the present time. So I hope it's a it's a fruitful hour. So I started with a little introduction this morning, and I told you there's 150 in the collection, right? And they cover um, a period of about 600 years, and maybe more if 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 you if you go all the way back to Moses, and and uh, there's one attributed to Moses and two attributed to Solomon, you know, that's, that's going to take you back, uh, you know, an, another p- potentially like 400 more years. But I, I'm going to just start with David because David's responsible for 73 of the Psalms, at least the titles. And you'll notice when you look at the, at the Psalms, a number of them are going to have uh, a title there. Now, they don't all have one. But lots of them do have a title that tells you it's a, it's a psalm to or of David. And it's not clear sometimes whether it might be a song that was to David or of David. But most of the time we assume that's of David, that he's the one who wrote that psalm. So there's 73 attributed to David. And that seems like a good place to kind of start when you start thinking about what's, what do these psalms reflect in the life of Israel. I'm going to start with David. And then as I told you this morning... There are psalms that go past the rebuilding of the temple in 515. So that's, that's a 1,000, if you want to round off David's rule, to uh, you know maybe 450 or something like that. So you're looking about six, approximately 600 years of Israel's history. In terms of authorship, 73 are attributed to David. And I, I also think, I mentioned at least in one of the services, I don't think these titles are part of the inspired word. Uh, they were added later. There's no doubt about that. There's no question about that. They didn't circulate uh, initially with the title. That was added later. But they're ancient. And I, I don't have any reason to doubt the titles. Um, 
I wouldn't want to go back and try to make an argument about why any of them weren't written by the person that it's attributed to. So I don't think they bear the same level of inspiration. I wouldn't call it inerrant in the title, but I don't see any reason to doubt if it says a Psalm of David. So 73 are attributed to David. Uh, there's another character uh, who's, it's actually a son, um, or, or there's an Asaph and the sons of Asaph. And um, there's 12 attributed to Asaph. And he shows up in First Chronicles 16 as a, a court singer in David's court. And so he has uh, 12 psalms. Then there's a kind of a mysterious figure, uh, well, infamous, let's say that, Korah. And there's 11 attributed to Korah, but not to Korah, to the sons of Korah. Now, if you go look at Numbers chapter 16, and he also comes up in Jude chapter, well, there's only one chapter, but the, I think it's like the first four verses, uh, he comes up in, in, the, in the context of judgment. So if you, uh, if you look in Numbers 16, you'll see that Korah uh, was someone who challenged Moses and Aaron's leadership and, and led like 250 other people to also challenge Moses' leadership. Uh, to cut a long story short, the ground ends up swallowing them up. Now that's Korah and his household. But apparently some of his sons weren't swallowed up because the sons of Korah uh, are uh, the, you've got 11 psalms attributed to them. Then you have a couple attributed to a couple of Ezraites. Uh, Ethan is the name of one of them. You've got two attributed to Solomon. You've got one attributed to Moses. And then you end up with about a third of them anonymous. So when you're thinking about authorship, David stands out. 73 are attributed to him. And we're gonna, a lot of the Psalms we're going to look at in the course of this week uh, are Psalms of David. And what we saw even this morning... The Psalms reflect the full gamut of Israel's experience. And Israel had a hard experience. And so you're going to have laments. You're going to have hymns of praise. You're going to have Thanksgiving Psalms. And they just reflect Israel's life. It's Israel's songbook. And um, so for us, that's good because their experiences are similar to ours. Now, the specifics of their experience would be different. But they experienced the same kinds of joy, the same kinds of blessing from God. They also experienced the same kinds of pain and suffering. And all that's reflected uh, in the Psalms. So I mentioned this morning also that they're very popular among Christians, even sometimes finding their way attached to the New Testament. I think I, I said because they're Scripture. And I mentioned because they, the, the flow goes humans to God. It expresses human emotion to God. I think we like hearing people pour their, themselves out, whether in praise or whether in lament. And, but the third thing that I, I sort of hinted at, and I, and I said I'd get to it in some other session, but the Psalms, I think they're important for Christianity, and they've been popular with Christians because they point to Christ. And, and I'm going to encourage you to do something uh, that that I was not encouraged to do in my entire educational pilgrimage. In college, I had Bible classes. I had a, some sort of interpreting the Bible class. And here's the principle I learned for biblical interpretation. Number one, um, the text can only mean what it meant for the original audience. 
So, so when you're trying to discern the meaning of the text, you've got to put yourself back in the historical context. You've got to ask, what was going on in the life of that biblical writer? What was the situation? And in order to understand the text, you've got to put yourself back in that historical context. And whatever the author intended it to mean, that's the extent of the meaning. So authorial intent was, a, was a, two words that were critical to biblical interpretation. Now, I'm still an advocate of seeking the author's intent of a text. But uh, I'm convinced now, looking back, and it happened in seminary too. I had a biblical interpretation class. Uh, I had Bible classes, and I, I got that steady diet of the author's intent, the author's intent, the author's intent. And I do think that's a good place to begin. But now, having taught for 24, uh, finishing 24 years, I've taught a how to interpret the Bible class at least once a year, and a lot of those years, two times a year. So I've taught a hermeneutics class, you know, something like 40 times or something like that. And in those early years, teaching students that same principle, and then encountering how Jesus and Peter and Paul and uh, James and how other New Testament writers were interpreting the Old Testament. So now that's New Testament writers doing biblical and hermeneutics. Their Bible was the Old Testament. And when you looked at how they read the Old Testament, they were finding Jesus everywhere. So my teacher said, well, that's because they were inspired. They can do that. You can't. So I sort of accepted that. Okay. But once you get away from just having that hammered into you all the time, and now you're teaching students, and they're saying, I had a student tell me one time in my, in my biblical hermeneutics class, I think he said Peter. Peter would make an F in this class because of the way he's reading the Old Testament. And I said, yep, I guess he would. And then somebody said, well, what about Jesus? And I said, no, Jesus would make an A. Even if I didn't like the way he was interpreting the Old Testament, he'd still get an A. But I think maybe I'd give Peter a C. I don't know. But I'd have a hard time failing Peter or Paul. But, but these are the kinds of questions that make you, when your answer to a student feels hollow, it makes you rethink things. And so... Uh, I started thinking, you know, maybe the way Jesus reads the Old Testament is a model for how I ought to read the Old Testament. And maybe the way Peter interprets the Psalms or other passages in the Old Testament, maybe that's not just their inspiration. Maybe they're modeling how we ought to read the Old Testament. And here's what's at the heart of the way they read the Old Testament. They found Jesus everywhere. They found Jesus and references to Jesus in Psalms that I, in my hermeneutics class I'd say, no, that doesn't seem to be what the author intended. But they said, no, that was referring to Jesus. Good example. It's not a psalm, but it's a good example. You just come out of the Christmas season, and you might have noticed that in Matthew's treatment of the birth of Jesus, five times he said something happened, such and such happened to fulfill what the prophet said. And uh, when, when Jesus, when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to Egypt, right, because of Herod's decree. So they take the, they take the baby uh, to escape being murdered by the, by the Romans, by Herod's decree. And then when Herod dies, they come 
back out of Egypt, back to Judea. And Matthew says, this happened in order to fulfill what the prophet said, and he quotes Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I shall call my son. Now you can't find anybody who thought that was a reference to Jesus or the Messiah. That was, if you go back and, say, and look at the context, what Hosea is talking about, he's talking about the Exodus. My son is Israel. Egypt was slavery in Egypt. Out of Egypt I shall call my son is a reference to the Exodus. But Matthew read that and said, well, yeah, it was a reference to the Exodus, but its fullest meaning was this event in Jesus' life. Now, that's, that wouldn't be good hermeneutics based on how I was taught or what I was teaching my students, but that's what Matthew did. And so a student might say to me, well, Matthew did that, and I'd say, yeah, but he was inspired. And you're not, so you can't do that. I, I don't teach my students that anymore. I argue now that the Bible is a unified whole, and the thing that unifies the whole Bible is Jesus. Jesus is the thread that unifies all of the 66 books. And I'm open to finding Jesus anywhere in the biblical text. And um, I think without looking for Jesus in the text, you get books that, that don't always fit easily together. It's hard to see why this Old Testament book even has much application for Christians if you're not looking for Jesus in the text. And um, so there are other people who, I, I, I didn't just start a revolution here, but uh, there is a movement, uh, even in evangelical hermeneutics, uh, towards looking for Jesus in the text. And uh, even in ways that maybe the original author couldn't have known. But who really is the author of a biblical book? Yeah, isn't that what we argue? All scripture is God-breathed? Well, if all scriptures God breathed, then there's an author even beyond Matthew or David. And maybe that human author is writing things that they couldn't even fully understand because God is ultimately the author. And if God's ultimately the author and Jesus is what unifies it, then you're not going to make a bad grade in my class because you're finding Jesus in places where it might not be obvious. So... Um, Back to the Psalms. They point to Jesus. And I know the Psalms point to Jesus in a lot of places because the New Testament writers are finding Jesus in places that we wouldn't ordinarily look. Jesus himself. I'll give you some examples. In Matthew 21, in Mark 12, and Luke 20, he explains why he is rejected by the Jewish religious leaders by citing Psalm 118, 22 and 23, which reads, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in His eyes. That's Psalm 118, 22 and 23. Jesus quotes that and, and makes the connection that He is the cornerstone that the builders have rejected, and the builders of the Jewish leadership. He finds that in the Psalms. That's how He explains his rejection. That same one, uh, Psalm 118, at verses 25 and 26, that's what the, the pilgrims sang, the Jewish pilgrims, when Jesus was arriving on the donkey, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to declare that Jesus is the Messiah. 
in, um, in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, Peter preaches his Pentecost sermon, remember? Peter has two biblical texts that he cites in order to conclude, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. He quotes two biblical texts in order to draw that conclusion. The first one is Psalm 110.1. Psalm 110 is the most quoted, quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. So this is Peter now, quoting Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit here until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's one passage that Peter quotes. The other is Psalm 16, 8 through 11, which says that my Lord said to my, uh, the Lord said to my Lord that he would not abandon his soul to Hades. And the New Testament writers said, well, David's in the grave. That's what Hades is. It's the realm of the dead. David died and was buried. So it's not about David. It must be about Jesus and the resurrection, that he would not abandon his holy one or would not, would not allow him to see decay. So Peter sees that as a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. Right there in the psalm, Psalm 16. And based on Psalm 16 and Psalm 110.1, he concludes, Let all Israel be assured God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Paul in Acts 13.35 in a sermon at Pisidian Antioch quotes that same psalm, Psalm 16, as well as Psalm 2-7, which we're going to read in a minute, which says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says that's a reference to, that's God talking about Jesus, the Messiah. And so that's Paul's biblical text for his sermon. You know, like I got up this morning and said, turn to Psalm 39. Peter and Paul get up in front of their audience and basically say, Turn to Psalm 110.1 and then Psalm 16. Or turn to Psalm 2.7 and then Psalm uh, 16. And from that, draw conclusions about Jesus as Messiah. So now what's my point? The Psalms point to Jesus. And we see New Testament inspired authors finding Jesus in these Psalms. The book of Hebrews. Uh, you look in chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, the whole of chapter 7, it's like that whole uh, chapter, is a meditation on Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews has a whole chapter meditation on one passage in the psalm and his conclusion is Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. He's finding Jesus in the Psalms. Earlier than that, in chapter 1, the whole point of Hebrews chapter 1 is Jesus is greater than angels. Well, the writer of Hebrews, just could, he could have just said that. Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, is greater than angels. But rather than just saying it, making the assertion, he quotes from like 11 Old Testament passages, almost all of them Psalms in order to argue that Jesus is greater than angels. In chapter 7, he quotes from the psalm, 
Psalm 1, the one I mentioned earlier, in order to argue he's, he's, he's greater than the priest and he's greater than Melchizedek. What am I arguing? The Psalms point to Christ. That's what biblical books do because Jesus is what binds them all together. In John's revelation, he understands the power of the rule of Jesus through the lens of Psalm 2.9. This child is the one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now that Psalm 2 gets quoted a lot also in the New Testament. But that Psalm 2.9, that he shall rule with a rod of iron. The book of Revelation quotes that twice in chapter 2 and in chapter 12 to say something about Jesus' kingly rule and that Jesus rules with a rod of iron based on Psalm 2.9. Uh, now, when you start looking particularly at the Revelation 12, that's the passage where the great dragon wants to destroy the child that the woman is having, but the dragon can't. And because he rules with a rod of iron, and, and this is kind of the birth of, birth of Jesus. This would be a good Christmas sermon. But they don't sing Christmas carols and they don't give presents. You know what happens as a result of this child being born who rules with a rod of iron? The great dragon, the ancient serpent, gets thrown out of heaven. Because this child that's born that he can't destroy rules with a rod of iron. Psalm 2.9. And this, you think about the, the, the names that are attached to the, the dragon, the ancient serpent, Satan, devil. Just, just cast, just bounced right out of heaven. I mean, just like so much trash. Because this child rules with an iron scepter, a rod of iron. And um, so my argument is always um, any, any biblical book is going to point to Jesus. And I think the Psalms certainly do. So, let's talk about how they're structured. Now, that's a little bit of my introduction. Uh, I went further than I did this morning. This morning I just said their scripture and quoted 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And then I said we like them because the, the direction of the flow is from human beings to God. So you get human beings pouring themselves out to God. You see all manner of human experience there and you can identify with it. But I'm adding to that list now. We like them because they point to Jesus, or at least we should. They help us understand the nature of Jesus uh, because they point to him. So that's one major topic. This one is, is, is the thing I find most fascinating. And it's how these 150 psalms are structured. Um, you might think that somehow they're just sort of randomly pieced together. You know, like... Like maybe the the David Psalms are all together, or or maybe the the all you know the sons sons of Korah, all those Psalms are together, or something like that. But it's not true. They're not structured that way. They're not structured chronologically. And then all of from the oldest, you know, going back maybe maybe you got uh, Moses and then Solomon and then all of David's and then work forward to those after the rebuilding of the temple. But they're not. You might think you got all the laments together and then all the th thanksgiving, and then all the praise together, but you don't. They're not structured like that. And unless you're really paying attention, you won't see any rhyme or reason to the way that they're structured. But there is a very definite structure uh, that I see as part of God's providence, not only in inspiring the, the, the expressions that we find here, 
but even in the way that the 150 psalms are constructed and pieced together into the collection. So open up to Psalm, uh, Psalms 1 and 2. Now, I've got, I want you to look at your Bible, and above Psalm 1, do you have some sort of heading that says Book 1? I'm curious, how many of you, your Bible says Book 1? Okay, do you know what that means? Do you know how many books you have? <clears throat> there are five books of Psalms. This is the first. It's Psalms 1 through 41. Now, I think it's, I'm going to go a little bit further. I'm not just going to say Book 1 is 1 through 41. I think it's a little more complicated than that. But definitely, book one ends with Psalm 41. Most of these are Psalms of David. Most of these are laments. <clears throat> but Psalms 1 and 2, I think, function as an introduction to the whole collection. So I want us to look at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and see the themes that are highlighted here and how they introduce the whole collection. Okay? So Psalm 1 starts, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the, in the way of the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Now that's the heart of it. Now he goes on and says that person's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. But, but the real heart of this first psalm, it is a wisdom psalm. It's a psalm about the law and it is the blessing for those who obey God's law. There is a blessed, blessedness to those who don't walk in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers or uh, what is it, walk, it's a walk, stand, or sit in the way of sinners. But in contrast to that, but devote themselves to the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. It's the way of wisdom. But it's, it's focused on God's instruction, God's law, right? Now, Psalm 2. Now, if we, had, if we had more time, I'd go back and say, look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is one of the passage that looks ahead to a Davidic king, a king who will sit on David's throne. It's like one of those important passages for why is David such a big, a big deal? And why is there a connection between Jesus and David a big deal? Well, 2 Samuel 7 would be your text to go look at it. But Psalm 2 is really a reflection on 2 Samuel 7. On this coming king who will sit on David's throne. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's one of those texts that's so frequently quoted in the New Testament as a reference to Jesus. Verse 8, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. That's that other passage that gets quoted so frequently about Jesus as king and how he will rule. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry at your way and your way will lead you to destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. 
Now look how Psalm 2 ends. The last phrase, what's the first word? Blessed. What was the first word of Psalm 1? Blessed. So chapters 1 and 2 begin and end with the blessing. Blessed are those who. And the theme of Psalm 1 is meditating on devoting yourself to God's law. The theme of Psalm 2 is the coming king, the coming Davidic Messiah and his kingdom. Now that's two of the most important themes in the entire book of Psalms. And the two and Psalm 1 and 2 are structured with the blessed and blessed beginning and ending. It just looks like they're composed as the introduction for this whole collection. Then I believe book 3 actually does begin well, excuse me, Psalm 3, is really the first psalm in book 1. If, if 1 and 2 is sort of the introduction, then Psalm 3 is the first psalm, really, of book 1. But you've got, that runs from 3 through 41. That, that's book 1. And most of them are of David, and most of them are laments. So that's how it opens. Before I get any deeper in those weeds, I want you to go... Uh, to 150. Actually, start at 146. We're going to look at the last five. So if it has an introduction, Psalm 1 and 2, to the whole collection, it would make sense that there might be a conclusion to the whole collection. And I think there's clearly a, cl- a conclusion. So lots of laments early. Book 1 is filled with the laments, people crying out to God, often David. But how does it conclude? What we're going to find is that these psalms, although not, not directly like this, from lament to praise, they don't, they don't just move in a straight line up, but it's a slow progression where you got more laments early, they start to thin out in the, you know, about 72 or 73, and then you get more and more praise. So the Psalms are moving towards praise all the way to get to that last book, which is like 107 to 150, and it's overwhelmingly praise, just like the first book is overwhelmingly lament. And isn't that the direction that life ought to go? We ought to always be moving towards praise. We might be in lament at the moment, but our lives shouldn't be stuck in lament. We shouldn't be stuck in the pit. We should be moving towards praise, even able to praise God in the pit because we recognize His presence with us. So we ought to find praise then at the end of the book, if that's how it's moving. Well, look at Psalm 146. See the opening? 146.1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord my soul. Psalm 146. Now, 146 through 150, every psalm, 146 to 150, begins with praise the Lord. Now that's a word, Alleluia. We sang it this morning, Alleluia. The Allelu means praise. It's a command, praise. Yah is short for Yahweh. Alleluia is a command to praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. 146 through 50 all begin with the phrase, praise the Lord. Now look at 146 and look at the end of it. Verse 10. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. 
Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So you've had all kinds of psalms. You've got laments. You've got praises. You've got thanksgiving. You've got songs of ascent where Jewish people are traveling to Jerusalem. They're singing them as they are entering the holy city. You've got royal psalms that focus on the, the king or the coronation of a king. Uh, you've got wisdom psalms that talk about the blessedness of studying God's law. You've got all types of psalms. They're not all praise. But here from 146 to 150, you've got five psalms that all begin and end with the command, praise the Lord. So 146, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Look, I'm just going to prove it to you now. Look at 147, praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise Him. Now go to the end of 147. That's going to be verse 19. He has revealed His word to Jacob, His laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know His laws. Praise the Lord. Begins and ends with praise. Look at 148. Verse 1. Praise the Lord. And then it just goes into the praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him in the heights above. So there's a, there's a part of it that just it's like praise the Lord from the heavens and everything in the heavens, praise the Lord. And then it jumps down to at verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth. So it goes heavens, earth. Everything in the earth should praise the Lord. And then it ends, verse 14. He has raised up for His people a horn, the praise of all His faithful servants of Israel, the people close to His heart. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And look at 149. Praise the Lord. Sing the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of His faithful people. Then look at the end of it. Start about, just read the, the, the last line. See it? Praise the Lord. And then 150. Every line... Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Verse 2. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Praise Him with the sounding trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. And then it ends. Alleluia. Praise the Lord. So the last book of the Psalms, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to finish this out, but I'm telling you now there are five books. And book five ends with the last five Psalms all beginning and ending with the command, praise the Lord. Now, you think that's coincidence? Oh, it just so happens that these psalms that begin and end with praise are the last five. Wow. No, it's not coincidence. They are very tightly structured. And there's much to learn just from the structure. So now let's go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God inspired the Psalms. So, we got our first book. I've said Psalms 1 and 2 is an introduction that focuses on the law and the coming Messiah. And blessed are those who meditate and devote themselves to the law. Blessed are those who look forward to the coming King and, and His kingdom. And then book 3 begins with a lament of David. And many of these in book 1 are going to... Psalm 3 begins, book 1 then, with a collection of laments. Now, um, look at Psalm 19, which sort of falls right in the middle then of book 1. You'll note it says, 
for the director of music, a psalm of David. It begins with creation. The heavens or the sky declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. I mean, on the one hand, he says, you know, the the clouds, the sky cries out. And then he says, well, they don't really have words. They can't really say words. And yet they do cry out. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Now, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. There's three references to God's law. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to his eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Right in the middle of Psalm 19, you have six references to God's law. Now remember where we started here? What was Psalm 1? A meditation on God's law and our need to meditate on it. Devote ourselves to it, and we will be blessed. That was an introduction. Right in the middle of book one, then, in the middle of the middle, there's this, the the law of the Lord is perfect, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. It just fits right there in the middle of this emphasis on God's law. And then verse 14, one of my favorites. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's the middle psalm in book one. Now let's jump ahead to the end of book one. Uh, So that's going to take us to Psalm 41. Okay. So now we saw that book five ends with five psalms all Praise the Lord, right? Let's see where book one ends. You see uh, Psalm 41, 13? Praise be to the Lord. So book one, which has two chapters of introduction and then a lot of lamenting. But at the end of it, the conclusion of book one is a call to praise the Lord again. Do you start to see the... The theme, the emphasis, the movement, it's about praise the Lord. Then book two begins. That's 42 through 72. And and it's interesting, the first two psalms in this collection, book two, fit together almost like one psalm. And they're both laments. uh, Lament, and and it says, for the director of music, uh, it, of the sun, it's a masculine or a, a certain type of psalm of the sons of Korah. But longing for the Lord's salvation. This is the opening then of book two, a lament. Now, what I want to call your attention to is how 42 and 43 fit together so closely. So look at 42.5. 
You see the phrase, why my soul are you downcast? You see that? Okay, Psalm 41, or excuse me, 42, 5. Why my soul are you downcast? Now look down at verse 6. My soul is downcast within me. Now go down to verse 11. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Then look at Psalm 43, verse 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? The same line. It shows up three times in 42, and there it is also in 43. These two belong together. They need to be side by side. You've got this same theme about why my soul are you downcast. But that's not the only thing that says these two go together. Look back at 42.5. Why my soul are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Then look at the next line. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Now go down to verse 11. Why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. There's that line again. Now look at Psalm 43, verse 5. After the why my soul are you downcast? Put your hope in God, for I will praise Him, my Savior and my God. Those aren't two random psalms that could just be anywhere. They have the same theme, the same language repeated. They have to go together. Almost like one psalm. But that's how book two opens. And it goes through 72. So let's go to 72. And the conclusion. Which will then transition us to book three. So look at 72.19. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. How about praise again as the last word of a book? The last word of book two. Praise the Lord. And then verse 20 is an odd little, this concludes the prayers of David and Jesse, of son of Jesse. Doesn't that say to you, this is the end of a section? You can't miss it. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. Now, it's not the end of David's psalms but it it does mark the end of the section then look at psalm 73 now we're at the beginning of book three which is psalms psalm 73 through 89 and look whose psalm it is whose is it a psalm of asaph look at 74 asaph 75 For the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph 76, Asaph 77, 78, Asaph 79. They're all here together, the the songs of Asaph. Then you get to uh, Psalm 84, the sons of Korah. Now, you get to 86, and there is a prayer of David. But who are most of these psalms that we're looking at in book 3? Asaph and sons of Korah. 
Thus it makes sense that at the end of book two, you get the line, this concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse, because the psalms that are coming are overwhelmingly Asaph and sons of Korah. It indicates that in the inspiration of these, that was meant to be the end of a section. Because the next section's not David, or rarely David. So that goes 73 uh, through 89. And then, let's look at the end, go to 89. Now, what do you think you're going to find here in Psalm 89? Just take a guess. What are you going to find at the end? 89 is the end of book 3. What do you think you're going to find at the end of Psalm 89? Praise the Lord. Let's see. Verse 52. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. That's like, okay, that's the end of book 3. You ready for book 4? And that's Psalm 90, or Psalms 90 through 106. And uh, interestingly, this book opens with a prayer of Moses. It's the only one attributed to Moses. And when you start to read it, like, we just don't have time to read all of it. It's, it's worth reading for sure, but this is more of an introduction. Look at, look at verse 13. He says, Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as, for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we've seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands. This sounds almost exactly like Moses in Exodus chapter 32 Asking God to relent in pouring out his wrath on the Israelites because they'd melted down gold into a calf and worshipped it. It's, it's a prayer for God to show mercy, just like Exodus 32. That's what begins book 4. And then go to 106. This is the shortest book. And 106. And I want to go to, uh, let's start at verse... 46 of 106 he caused all who held them captive to show them mercy save us lord our god there's a call a cry save us lord our god and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So it ends like all the other books end, with a call to praise the Lord. But look how it, book, the end of book 4 and the beginning of book 5 tie together. Note the save us, Lord our God, the cry to save us. Now go, back, go to Psalm 107, which is the first psalm in the final book. And it, the theme of it is God hears our cries. So Psalm 106, the last of book four, at the very end, save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations. Then the book five begins, give thanks to the Lord for his good, his love endures forever. Go down to verse six. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Look at verse 13. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distress. 
Then look at verse 19. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distress. And then verse 28. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. That psalm following the previous psalm that cried out, Save us, Lord our God. And then the next book opens with the affirmation that he hears our cries and he saves us. Could they fit together any more perfectly? I say no. And then uh, I told you about the end of book five. Now, five books. And book five ends with five praise the Lord, praise the Lord, alleluia psalms. Now you tell me that's not intentional. That, that this collection of 150 is not pieced together intentionally by God's providence um, to teach us certain things just by the way it's structured. That we should be moving towards praise. Even though we might go through periods of lament. We might find ourselves in the pit. We should always be moving towards praise. That'd just be one of the th- conclusions I would draw. Now, that's... Uh, big picture kind of stuff there uh, about the structure. Now I want to conclude tonight with a little, a few things of like, let's look at a few psalms and see the kinds of things that happen to individual psalms. They're as carefully constructed as the whole book is put together. Individual psalms are constructed that carefully. So um, one thing I'm, I do uh, encourage my students to do, it, when you're reading a psalm, think in terms of lines, and how one line balances another line. Because frequently, because it's poetry, you'll have like three lines, and, and they, they look like they might be different, but they're all saying the same thing. It's parallelism. And there's, there's several types of parallelism that you'll find. Look back to Psalm 1, and, uh, and, and I want to show you what I'm talking about, because I'll, be, I'll refer to this parallelism every night this week. But Psalm 1, the blessed is the one who? Psalm 1, blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked. So walk in the way of the wicked. That's one line. Look at the next line. Or stand in the way of sinners. Now I know walking and standing are not exactly the same thing. However, they can both point to the way that you live. And then the third line, or sit in the company of mockers. So you've got walk, stand, sit in three consecutive lines. Now that sounds like three very different things, but in actuality it's all pointing to the same thing, how you live, who you hang out with. And then look at the, you got wicked, sinners, and mockers, Right? Now that sounds like maybe that's three different entities, but it's not. It's just talking about the wicked or sinners. Those are parallel lines. Those aren't three different points. That's one point saying, don't hang out with, don't live your life among those who live contrary to God. That's the point in three lines. That's synonymous parallelism. So you're going along, lines are repeating the same idea, and suddenly you get a but. Or a yet. Now that's a different kind of parallelism. The first type's called synonymous. The second type's called antithetical. 
It's in contrast. This, 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 but this. Do you see that in Psalm 1? Blessed is the one who does this, who does this, do this. Verse 2. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That tells you there's a contrast. Now those lines are balancing the, those three lines about walking, sitting, standing. But they're balancing them in contrast. And the Psalms will do this everywhere. That's two types of parallelism, right? Synonymous, antithetical, which is in contrast to, look for like but or yet. And then sometimes the thought just gets carried forward, synthetic parallelism. The next line just advancing the thought in some way. That's the kind of parallelism that you should be paying attention to. And I'll, I'll sort of do that when I'm looking at Psalms. Then acrostics. Here's, here's the more interesting thing. Do you know what an acrostic is? If I told you um, this poem is an alphabet poem or an acrostic, in English that would mean, let's say, how many letters in the 24? How many letters in the English alphabet? 26? Okay, I can do them if I have to. A, B, C, but I'm not sure how many. But uh, I can count if I needed to. But it would mean like the first line of the poem, the first word starts with an A. And then the second line of the poem, the first word starts with a B. And then the third line of the poem, the first word starts with a C. It's an alphabet poem. Well, look at Psalm 111. And I, some of you will have a Bible that will indicate to you this, this psalm is an acrostic. So this is an example of every line of the poem, of the psalm, begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So now you don't care about the Hebrew alphabet tonight, but I'm, I'm, I, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beg, Gimel, Daleth, Hevazai, and Ketet, Yod, you don't care. But there's 22 of them, I promise. And so if every individual line begins with the, ne- the first word in it in Hebrew, now this won't work in English, but in Hebrew, you know, the language in which it was composed, every line, the first line begins with an olive, the second line begins with a word that begins with a baith, the next line, gimel, the next word, daleth. Now do you know how difficult it is to, to make a poem that says what you want it to say? I mean, think about when you get like to the Z. You got to find a word that begins with Z that says what you want it to say and not doesn't just sound stupid. And so we should have like you know, uh, twenty-two uh, lines in the poem, not verses, but lines. It's going to be gonna, even in English. You can usually figure that out. But like, praise the Lord. That's Alleluia. That begins with an Aleph. The next line, I will extol the Lord, begins with a baith. That line begins with a baith. The next line, uh, in the council of the, of the upright and in the assembly, begins with a gimel. It, each line begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Then turn to Psalm 112. The same thing's happening there. It's another acrostic, side by side. Praise the Lord again, that's hallelujah. And then blessed are those who fear the Lord, that begins with a baith. Who finds great delight in his commands, commands with a gimel, etc. It's an, it's an alphabet acrostic. Do any of your Bibles have a note there that says this is an acrostic? Or Yeah, see? Study Bibles will help you with these things. So now every line 
begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Look at Psalm 25. The acrostic here is every verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Not every line, every verse. So you should have 22 verses. It's harder to figure the lines, but you can figure the verses. How many verses do you have in this one? How many letters of the Hebrew alphabet? So verse one's get, the first word in verse 1 is going to begin with an olive. The first word in verse 2 is going to begin with a bath, etc. So that's a, each verse beginning with a successive letter. Psalm 34 does this. Psalm 145 does this. Acrostics. Now the most interesting one is Psalm 119. So flip there. You might know this one as the longest psalm. It is a meditation on the law. And it's amazing how many ways the psalmist finds a a way to speak of God's law. It's like he's got the thesaurus out, and he's finding every possible synonym you could find for law, instruction, teaching, decree, statute. And it's, it's fascinating just to read and see all the words he uses for law. But any of you have in your Bible maybe verses 1 through 8 marked off with an olive at the top? Some of you do. Psalm 119 is an acrostic where every eight verses begin with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verses 1 through 8, the first word is an aleph. Uh, verses 9 through 16, the first word is, begins with a bath. Verses 17 through 24, gimel, all the way to sin shen Think about how carefully constructed that poem, that poem is. It's remarkable. Then the last thing I'd say is when you're reading these, in, in terms of just structure, and remember, poets think in images. I don't. I'm not a poet. I mean, I have to work so hard to say anything that I think, you know, sounds decent. You know, if I wanted to tell you... Um, the Lord takes care of you. He'll meet your needs. I'd say that. The Lord takes care of you. He'll meet your needs. That's not very poetic. You're not going to remember that tomorrow night. But what if I said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down. You know, you know it. In the, in the green pastures. I'm not even going to get to the Stillwater line. <laughs> For you cowboy fans. But... Um, um, <laughs> yeah, but poets think in images, and these are poems. And so you've got to try to experience it, think about the image and, and what that image is trying to portray. So, you know, the, the Psalm 19, verse 14, that I said, may the, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Frequently in the Psalms, God's imaged as a rock. Now think about that. Does that mean that God is literally a rock? Does God look like a rock? Um, should you think, well, God is a rock? No, you should say there's something about God that is like a rock. So what is it? Strength, 
um, durability, something like that. Dependable. Rocks are dependable, I guess. Uh, but yeah, you, you need to look for, for things like that. So you've got to think about the image. You've got to use your imagination sometimes even. To, you know, the rivers clap. The mountains run like deer. They're, these are, this is poetry. So you, uh, some, how many of you have a Chevy truck? You drive a Chevy truck. Are you pretty committed to your Chevy truck? Are you like Ford stink? Are you just a Chevy person? Uh, maybe you were won over to the Chevy product by a commercial. See, Bob Seger goes back to my days. Uh, Bob Seger and the Bill, uh, Silver Bullet Band had a song, Like a Rock. Like a rock. Nothing ever got to me. You know, like a rock. You know the one I'm talking about. Now, you're probably not thinking about classic rock. You're thinking about the Chevy commercial. Because they ran that for a lot of years. And So why were they identifying their pickup trucks with a rock? Would you want to drive a rock? Would you buy a rock to drive around if they were selling them out on the street? Tires on a rock? Some people might, but most of you probably wouldn't want to drive a rock around. It would be tough, but why would they identify rocks with their trucks? Solid, durability, yes. It's not that their trucks look like rocks, or it's the durability. So can you just use that to sell anything? What if you were selling boats? Would you have a boat commercial that says, like a rock? <laughs> Nothing ever got to me <laughs> like a rock. It doesn't work. The metaphor, the image, that kind of language, you've got to think about it or you'll say things that, that aren't true about God or a boat or whatever. You have to think about the image. And we're going to see a lot of that kind of thing. So in, in conclusion here, here's my, here's my hermeneutical tips. I'm just going to run through these. One, and it's in your notes, treat each psalm holistically. Don't pull lines out. You do need the context. Every line fits together with the other lines. Lines balance lines. So be careful of pulling a line out. Read the whole psalm. Don't ever just randomly go to a line in a poem. Read the whole poem. There's, there's much to be gained from that. Second thing, ask yourself what kind of psalm is this? Is it a, a hymn of praise? Is it a thanksgiving uh, psalm? Is it a lament is it, a, is it something where Israelites would sing it on the way to Jerusalem? Is it a royal hymn? Is it a hymn uh, talking about the law and wisdom? Ask yourself, what kind of psalm is this? Third thing, look for parallelism. How do lines balance other lines? I'm going to try to do some of that for you as we go through these. But I don't know how to sh show you that this is poetry. It doesn't rhyme, not even in Hebrew very often. It's not like roses are red, violets are blue kind of. That's not when I say it's poem. They're poems. They don't rhyme like that. The real thing of Hebrew poetry is the lines balance each other, the parallelism. Appreciate the imagery. Try to experience it. That's four. Five, beware of hanging all your theology on one line in a psalm. It's poetry. It's often metaphorical, 
So I'm not saying there's not theology. There's plenty of theology in the Psalms. I'm just saying be cautious of hanging all your theology on one line of poetry. And a good example of that is Psalm 51.5. In sin did my mother conceive me, uh, which is uh, a cry of David for forgiveness. It's a penitential psalm, a psalm of repentance. But that line, in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, if you can really go to town on that one line and come up with a doctrine of original sin that David is saying he was already guilty before, before God as a sinner, before he was even born, you could get to certain kinds of theology that sexual relations in general is evil in some way. In sin did my mother conceive me? And some branches of Christianity have sort of gone that direction and partially because of that line. Be cautious of hanging too much theology on one line. If I'm going to argue that I'm a sinner before I'm even born and thus destined for hell before I'm ever born because of what Adam did, not because of my own sin, I'm going to want some affirmation of that in some other places other than one line of a poetic piece. And last, you won't be surprised by this, look for Jesus in the Psalms. Look for Christ in the Psalms. Think about how it may be pointing to him in some way. Uh, you have the Spirit, uh, just as Peter and Paul had the Spirit. And I think the Spirit gifts us, gifts us and equips us to read these in a way that we can, we can find Jesus there. And I think that's a healthy practice. So, um, that's our introduction to the Psalms. And um, I hope that, you know, I'd like to say, now, go read the Psalms before tomorrow night. Uh, but th don't do that. But here's what I'll say. Uh, go read Psalm 22 before tomorrow night because we'll spend most of our time on Psalm 22. And um, it's, it's one of my favorites, and I, there's, I think there's a, a, a lot of theology to talk about there. So Psalm 22 will be the focus of tomorrow night. And uh, if we're done, Nick, are we done? Uh, you don't no, no, no other word for the common good? All right, then I will uh, dismiss us with a, with a blessing. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. I'll see you tomorrow night.